0: Jesus's ministry is underway. Uh, He's starting to minister to individual people here in chapter five, uh, and we're gonna see that. In fact, there's four snapshots in this chapter, uh, who he's gonna talk to and who he's gonna minister to and what have you, Um, and so let's take a look. Uh, The first snapshot is one we looked at on Sunday where Jesus begins to call his laborers, uh, the disciples, uh, at at least Peter, James, and John, in verses one through 11. Let's take a look. It says, And it came to pass that uh, as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. (laughs) Again, we looked at this on Sunday, but one of the things that we didn't um, discuss as much was Notice here in verse one, it says they they were wanting to hear the word of God. Uh, Interesting that this phrase would be used, hearing the word of God. Um, How do you know uh, successful ministry? I believe it has to do with the word of God. Is the word of God being heard? Um, You know, many ideas out there about how to get people in church doors, and especially right now, (coughs) excuse me, as the church seems to be in a lot of ways failing uh, and shrinking in, in the world. Uh, but even here in America, people are saying, "Well, what do we need? To, what do we got to do to get people back into the church?" And it's it's sad to to hear all the hypotheses that are out there. When the Bible, I think, makes it clear, give attendance to the reading of Scripture. Paul told Timothy, uh, one of the things the church did in Acts two forty two steadfastly was to be given to the apostles' doctrine. That is to teach the word of God. That word doctrine really does mean teaching. And like we've said before, people are hungry for the word of God. And, um, you know, uh, it's funny because I wonder if that's the way it felt back in those days. Um, you know, they, the people were sick of hearing the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the, the chief priests. Uh, and when Jesus spoke, people say, man, he's speaking with one having authority, uh, not as the scribes or the Pharisees. I wonder if it was a little bit like today, where people sense there's not a real authority in what is being shared from the pulpits that it's more about opinions or how to balance your checkbook or having a happy life or you know this or that, when really the Bible, uh, teaching the full counsel of the word of God. Paul said, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. That is the whole word of God. And I, I just like to bring that up often because I, I do know there's pastors that listen to Athey Creek's Bible study here. And um, man, don't be afraid if you're a pastor, Bible teacher, man, teach the word of God. If you teach the Bible, people will... Um, be fed by the scriptures. And it's, uh, it's something that I feel like is, is one of the best kept secrets. It shouldn't be a secret, but it really is what people are hungry for, the word of God. Um, it's interesting to watch uh, trends in churches. Uh, you know, the seeker-friendly church of the 90s, maybe you guys remember the seeker-friendly movement. There was a lot of people into that. And it was kind of based on the premise, we need to make churches friendly to the seeker. So that when they come we have good coffee and that we have, you know, comfortable seats and that we have make sure that we don't go too long in a sermon and that we make sure and talk about things that are relevant to the seeker and interesting to them and you know have a really, really good worship team and entertainment and you know and on and on it went. You know, the Willow Creek movement and some of those others were kind of the, the tip of the spear there um but you know the problem with that that idea is do you remember when the woman at the well was talking to Jesus she was a woman of samaria and they had kind of a different religious view than the jews they believed you should worship on mount gerizim when uh, the jews say no it's mount zion in jerusalem and so there was a big contention so once she perceives that he's a prophet a man of god of some kind uh, once she perceives that, she starts to to say, ask the Bible question. Well, which mountain are we supposed to worship on? You Jews say it's there in Jerusalem. You know, um, uh, which one do we, is it G- 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 Gerizim or Zion? Well, Jesus answered her interestingly. He didn't say Jerusalem's the one. Uh, he didn't say that, Zion, but he didn't say Gerizim. Uh, in John 4, uh, 23, he said, but the hour comes and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh those who will worship him, seeketh such to worship him. Who, who, does, who does the Father seek? Those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. See, this is where the seeker-friendly movement, in my opinion, went wrong. We were all about the seekers. I, I say we. Um, A.C. Craig, we've just been teaching through the Bible. Um, but the seeker movement in the church, capital C, was all about the seeker. But the Father is the seeker. Not the people, that's the thing. The Father seeks people who are willing to worship in spirit and truth. We shouldn't be all about the seeker, people. We should be all about the seeker, the Father in heaven. And the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. Well, Brett, that won't draw people. Well, as it turns out, if you share the word in spirit and in truth, then people are drawn to that. Uh, new, new believers, uh, unsaved people. Um, like the unsaved people were drawn to Jesus in the same way. And we'll see tonight how this is gonna get Jesus in trouble because everybody's drawn to Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes and all those guys are jealous. Be careful when you hear you know, this big movement anti-megachurch, uh, which I can see why people are against megachurches, but be careful because some megachurches are okay, some are not. Uh, just like some small churches are okay and some are not. Um, but it's not about the size of the church as much as it's what, what are they doing? What, what are they doing is what we have to kind of watch out for um so um uh, and by the way less than 2% of churches uh teach any form of through the bible uh today which is a real unfortunate thing if you ask me uh we should get back to just going right through scripture uh verse by verse um by the way uh barna and all those guys that were really pro seeker friendly if you know uh, barnas uh what did he call it marketing the church back in the 90s when they wrote those books um, you know, and they called Christian people to go to church tithing units, uh, like, uh, which to me was like pretty insulting, uh, but that's what they, uh, tithing units, you know, how do you get more tithing units in your church? You know, and it's like, wow, they're just off course, so bad. Um, but one of the things that Barna did was a big research study on, you know, the churches and how seeker-friendly churches are, there's a spike in, in attendance in these seeker-friendly churches. And it was a big spike in attendance because that, that was their push. Um, but there was there was a funny thing that uh, a lot of us that were kind of um, from more the old school non denominational uh, Bible teaching through the Bible teaching churches um, they called there was there was two spikes and if you looked at their graph both spikes were equal um, the seeker friendly Movement, spike of, of, of church attendance and then the, the, the they called it an anomaly that's what they called it there's another anomaly. Uh, of another spike here, but we don't really know how to explain that. But anyway, so there were two same spikes um, and I'll tell you what the anomaly was. Mostly back then in the 90s, it was the Calvary Chapel, verse by verse, non-denominational Bible teaching churches that were registering on the Richter scale. But they just didn't know how to quantify a non-denominational church that's not in some uh, you know, uh, uh, formal uh, you know, organization of churches. Uh, it's kind of It was kind of a problem for them. Well, what's interesting is to see the seeker-friendly movement kind of crashed and burned. Now, a lot of those people are like disillusioned, saying, oh yeah, these churches that are successful right now, and they're trying to explain why they're uh, successful, but it's not good. Uh, you're building your churches on things like Bible prophecy, they said. Whatever you do, don't build a church attendance with Bible prophecy, and these people that go through the Bible verse by verse, that's cheating, as Andy Stanley once said. It's cheating going through the Bible. I don't feel like we're cheating. I feel like we're obeying. Uh, that's the difference. Um, when you go through the Bible, I think it's obedient to the scripture. Um, but, uh, but, but it's sad to see all these churches that were once sort of okay. They've kind of gone off the rails, a lot of them. And it's really heartbreaking. We need to be praying for the condition of the church of Jesus Christ. And I think the answer is not Acy Creek the answer is, let's get back to what the Bible says. What does the Bible teach? Um, because that's, that's what people are starving for. So, the, um, you know, um, we, a- Athey Creek doesn't sit around thinking about how can we get more people. Um, uh, we, we actually are just doing what the Lord's called us to do and, and people come, and I think that's a real secret. I remember one time, uh, the governing elders, we were in a, um, we had a little retreat, a prayer retreat, but we went to this restaurant to, to uh, have some lunch and we sat there and there, there was another group sitting right next to us and they were talking kind of loudly. You know when groups sort of talk a little bit louder and you, you can hear everything they're saying? It just kind of caught all our attention at the same time. And this group was um, a seeker-friendly church uh, group, uh, staff, and they were brainstorming, how can we get more people to our church? And uh, it was just so hard not to say, hey, I got a few ideas for you guys. Uh, I almost did that, but I didn't because um, I didn't want to be, you know, uh, busted on their conversation. But it was painful hearing their ideas, you know. It was basically, we could put in more dancing bears for the children's ministry and we can do this and that and all these little things that they were thinking. were like, oh, that's not gonna help. Um, by the way, uh, in his uh, brilliant book, The Marketing of Evil, uh, uh, I think it's David Kuplian. Um, he's written several versions of that, even modernized it a little bit. But back in the late 90s, he wrote that. Um, and talking about the Seeker Friendly Movement, uh, it, he refers to a GQ article uh, that uh, was written. And it was some you know editor that um, was a atheist uh, editor for GQ magazine. Well, he decided to do an experiment and he, he realized the church was this lifestyle for all these Christians out there. So he, he said, I'm gonna go to one of these churches and I'm gonna be a Christian for two whole weeks. That's what he said. I'm gonna go to the church and I'm gonna be a Christian. I'm gonna listen to Christian music read Christian books, uh, go hang out with Christian people at church and all this stuff. And he wrote this article and it was, it was so painful. It was just a painful, painful article. But basically his conclusion was, it's exactly the same as a regular life. If you wanna go to a rave party and have fun, a concert, you can do that as a secularist. But if you want to be a Christian, there's the version of that. There's Christian concerts, there's Christian parties, and there's Christian, you know, entertainment. It's all the same, only there's one difference. Christians are like five years behind the times in being cool. That was his thing. If you want to just be a little bit, you know, out of style, uh, go with the Christian thing. But that's what he got out of it. And it was because, I've noticed that's really true. Christians trying to be hip and cool, we're not very good at that. Um, we're like years behind if we're trying to be hip and cool. Um, I, I believe um, you know the, the Lord has called us to be different. And that's what Jesus brings to this story. The, the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, there was a religion in place, but it was, it was just deader than a doornail. And Jesus comes along and the people hear him gladly. The common people heard him gladly. And <clears throat> they heard that his words were that of having authority. Um, and, And Jesus was not trying to be like everybody else or trying to conform to everybody else. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 6, verses 16 through 17. It reminds us, "'What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? "'For you are the temple of the living God, "'as God hath said. "'I will dwell in them and walk in them. "'I will be their God, and they shall be my people. "'Wherefore, come out from among them "'and be ye separate,' saith the Lord." and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. This is, by the way, cited from Isaiah fifty-two eleven. 11. Uh, Paul's quoting Isaiah. You know what's sad to me is historically, if you know your history a little bit, some of the best art and music um, uh, came from people that were inspired, I think, by God uh, artistically and musically. Guys like Bach, who believed every note of his music was a a way to glorify God. Uh, um, and, you know, he was the one cutting the trail. Everybody copied Bach after he wrote his, you know, music, his sonatas and what have you. Everybody copied him because he was the cream of the crop. And that's true even of some artists and, you know, famous painters, people that were inspired to be the cutting edge. And then the world copied them. Today, you kinda sense it's backwards. The world does its artistry and the, and the church now copies the world musically, artistically. We have the advantage of the Holy Spirit in us. Come ye out from among them, be separate. Do, do what the Lord calls us to do and don't try to copy and duplicate the world. That's the problem I think the church sometimes has made um, when Christians try to copy the world. Jesus caused a stir right here because he was different and people were hungry to hear the word of God. Um, that's kind of an important thing. So, um, so back to our chapter here. I know that uh, I need to hurry through this because we already covered this <laughs> uh, in, on Sunday. Verse three. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's and um, prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now, when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and the net brake. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished and all that were with him at the draught of fishes which they had taken. And so it was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Um, I like how you know they just you know, reluctantly Peter obeyed Jesus. Um, But when you uh, obey the Lord, you end up with fullness. We looked at that, Um, you know, uh, from failure to fullness. That was kind of what we talked about on Sunday. Um, You know, um, it's good to to realize where all good things come from, by the way. Um, When you're successful in an endeavor, um, what's your response? I like how Peter realized I'm just a unclean sinner, Depart from me, from a sinful man. That was Peter's response to this great, he doesn't say, well, did you see my great fishing talent? Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't do that, because he knows, he knows where it really came from. Um, remember when you have good things happen in your life, don't forget where it comes from. James 1:17 reminds you and me, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, um, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Uh, that's James 1, um, and um, so you know, Jesus calls them now to be fishers of men. That's their new ministry. Um, Jesus uh, used Peter's boat, boat as a pulpit. Now, not every boat is a pulpit, but every pulpit should be a boat. Um, uh, that is because we're supposed to be fishers of men. Uh, for me, in, in my case, it's a stool. Um, but uh, but hopefully, every pulpit is a boat in the sense that um, we're supposed to be fishers of men. Have you ever noticed um, <clears throat> that uh, churches don't do uh, so-called altar calls anymore? Have you ever noticed that? Um, what happened to the old-fashioned altar call? Well, if you look it up and read, you know, the critics of altar calls, and and I use the term altar call loosely. I mean, there are churches that still do altar calls, and they have altars down at the front, and and what the critics will say: altars were an invention of the nineteenth century. Uh, when they started doing altar calls in churches, but you never see that in the Bible and blah, blah, blah. But I I would just disagree. Now, we don't have an altar here um, and we don't make people come forward. We have, and we've done, done it a few times where people can come forward if they want. But um, the technique, uh, you know, there's different methods, but the message is still the same. It's the gospel message. And I'm concerned that churches, um, they, they've got this, sort of mindset that says, well, we don't really see altar calls in the Bible. I, I disagree. <clears throat> Peter preached a sermon and 3,000 people were saved right that day, that same day. It was, it was, obviously, it was evangelistic and there was decisions that were made that day. Um, to me, that's very obvious. Um, there were even unsuccessful altar calls. Uh, remember the story that we read about when Paul went to Mars Hill in Athens and he preached and then, it was a real disappointment because only a few people were saved, very few. But most people said, ah, we'll hear more about this later. And it, was, it was kind of goes down as sort of a failure sermon. But you know, the idea is, you know, I think there's an invitation that needs to be made because a person needs to make a decision. Now, another cynical look is, well, you're, you're in the emotion of the church service and you're just trying to coerce people, manipulate them into making a decision for Christ. There are people that have done that, you know, um, and I I know it. Maybe you've seen that. Like, uh, that's why I always say, I'm not going to do anything weird or embarrass you. The reason I say that on Sunday morning, if you wonder, is because a lot of churches have abused that. Um, You know, they'll say, We won't do anything. Just sit where you're sitting, just raise your hand. And they'll like raise their hand. Oh boy, here we go. In front of people, I'll raise my hand because he said, I won't have to do anything else. Now, those of you with your hands raised, step out of the aisle and come down to the front. (laughs) Um, I've seen manipulation like that. And, and that's, that's not cool. Uh, and I, I will promise you, I'm not gonna manipulate or coerce people in such a fashion. That happens in churches, uh, stuff like that. So a lot of people are really apprehensive, And because of the abuse, people have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. I think it's a good thing to invite people to be saved. I think, by the way, another crit- criticism, they act like that's the only place a person can be saved. That's ridiculous. Uh, I, I know there's a lot of people who are not saved in churches. Um, and I was not saved in a church building. My mother was not saved in a church building. My father was not saved in a church building. None of us were saved at altar calls. Um, So uh, I'm I'm one who understands a person can accept the Lord. Um, We had a story a few years back, a girl called our church office and in tears and excited about her faith. And she just said, I was listening to the radio, uh, driving on I-5 and I heard you give an altar call at the end. I didn't even hear the whole teaching but you just shared the gospel and she, and she just realized she needed to repent of her sins and accept Christ. And she, uh, she prayed in her car as she's driving on I-5. Um, was hers not legitimate because it wasn't in a church building? That's ridiculous. Uh, the Lord uses all people and places and all kinds of things to draw people. But I feel like one of the mistakes churches are making is not giving a people an opportunity to accept Christ. Um, one of the reasons why I think pastors don't do that is because they're frustrated. They're afraid that people just won't come forward or people won't acknowledge. Or, and so they, they don't do it or they even sort of act like it's not even necessary because they're afraid if they, if they give an altar call, nobody will respond. Um, you know, I've just kind of been convinced over the years, even when Athe Creek had 20 people, that if nobody accepts the Lord, then at least I've done my job to preach the gospel and share the good news. Um, and, and I've always thought if, if nobody's, maybe, maybe anybody's saved in the room or, or uh, maybe I've just planted seeds, but I'm not going to be embarrassed or sad if nobody responds. Now, what's interesting is that's almost never happened in the 26 years of Athe Creek's existence. Um, you may have been to a service out of the five, Um, where maybe nobody responded. But out of the five, there's always someone who's accepting Christ. And I don't always give an invitation at every service. Uh, I do at some of the three of the five. Um, A few Sundays ago, the Lord really stirred my heart. I forget which service it was, but I wasn't doing a formal invitation that weekend because the Lord just didn't put that on my heart until I think it was at was the 10 o'clock. It was one of the services. The Lord said, "This you got to do that. And I was running late. And I was looking at the time, thinking about parking lot jams and all that stuff. And and the Lord was like, nope, you got to do it. And so I did. And there was like 25 people that accepted the Lord that Sunday in that one service, just that one service. Um, I, I, I hope that you are sensitive to that. Like, like that, that we... Um, that we all look for those opportunities, like we did talk about Sunday, to preach the gospel, um, be fishers of men, share the good news, and if people, you know, if they don't accept the Lord, but that's that's between them and the Lord, but but it's our job to 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 preach and teach and share and give people an opportunity. So can I just lovingly challenge anybody who's kind of like, well, why do you do altar calls? What can you just be saved in an instant? Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's what happens. Uh, born again, it's an event. Uh, Jesus said, if you confess with, or Paul said in the book of Romans, um, you know he said, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's an event. That's a moment when you confess and believe. And for some reason, churches just kind of don't believe that anymore. And I think less and less people are being saved. Again, the problem is a lot of people go to church thinking they're gonna be entertained, like going to the Snitzer Hall. Uh, to hear a concert or to go. And and if you go to church and that's all there is, then you probably would bail out on the church. But if you go to the church where the Lord is moving by his spirit to stir hearts to repent of their sin and to be uh, born again and saved, that's a whole nother deal. Only the church can offer that. Well, uh, all that is, um, uh, you don't want, don't want anything that would, you know, you um, know, uh, be missed out on many opportunities. Um, so we're, we're, we're fishers of men. Hopefully this pulpit is a boat, uh, but not all, not all boats are, are pulpits. Anyway, Jesus calls the laborers. We looked at that whole thing on Sunday. We'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. The second part of this chapter is Jesus cleanses the leper. Um, this is a big deal. Um, this is kind of the first leper that Jesus will cleanse uh, in the biblical gospel narrative. In verse 12, it says, And it came to pass when he was in a certain city, behold a man full of leprosy who seeing Jesus fell on his face and besought him saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And he put forth his hand and touched him saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him and he charged him to tell no man but go and show thyself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing, according as Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. But so much the more went there a fame abroad of him, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So here in Luke's gospel, this is where the ramping up of the people, multitudes you know, coming uh, to, to be healed of Jesus. But this is, this is such a big deal, uh, this idea. Notice Jesus never healed a leper. It's always uh, referred to as cleansing of the leper. Uh, why is the word cleansing? Even though we know leprosy is a disease. Today, we call it Hansen's disease. And there are different strains of leprosy and what have you. But, um, but the, 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 the cleansing part is kind of important in the sense that a leprosy was always a type or a picture in the Bible of sin. Uh, spiritually unclean uh, leprosy is a dirty disease that's often linked to the idea of sin. But I love, that's what needs to happen. Uh, We are sort of given the disease of sin by our own actions, if you would. But there's a cleansing, just like the cleansing of the leper. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this leprosy picture is that of sin. Uh, By the way, um, there's still leprosy in the world today. People think that it's totally gone. Um, Although it is rare, um, the uh, people that study these things found that there was approximately uh, 208,000 people in 2022 who've had uh, Hansen's disease or leprosy around the globe, most in Asia and Africa. The United States, there were about 100 people who uh, um, got a Hansen's disease diagnosis um, this last year, 100 people. So thanks to modern medicine, however, uh, the discovery of antibiotics, leprosy is curable. Uh, over the past 20 years, um, over 16 million people have been cured of leprosy in the last 20 years. It's just, so it's, it's not the same thing. In Bible times, it was a death sentence. Uh, but notice in verse 12, it says, the man was full of leprosy, which means he was at the ending stages of his life, um, and this is where you know, you'd lose feeling in your extremities, you probably lost fingers, and your nose starts to deteriorate. Um, there's debate even to this day, especially in ancient times, why did people's extremities fall off with leprosy? Um, there's a couple theories. One is you lose feeling, so you end up you know, stubbing your toe when you're walking, and you don't feel it, and you so you broke your toe or uh, you you know cut your toe, but you don't feel it, so you don't really deal with it. Uh, and then it gets infected, and then it causes all kinds of trouble. Um, some people think it's that. Some people say, this is grotesque, but if you lived in a leper colony, um, the rats would be drawn to leper colonies because of the stench. And the rats would come and nibble at night, uh, and they wouldn't feel it because you, you couldn't feel your toes or your nose or whatever. Pretty gross. Um, but... You say, Brett, why, why do you have to talk about that gross stuff? Because leprosy is a type of sin. You're, you're supposed to see, wow, that's really gross. That's the whole point of the Bible, talking about leprosy. Um, leprosy is like sin in so many ways, it's hard to even count. Um, the first thing leprosy does is you start to lose feeling. That's what sin does, by the way. The more you sin, the less you feel its effects, um, both in pleasure, but also in you know, hurt and, and grief. Um, you know, you can become sort of normalized in sin and and pretty soon you don't even think it's wrong anymore. I mean, think about how many things as an older adult do you think, ah, oh, it's not really that bad. But when you were a kid, you would have thought, oh, I would never do that. But today, are you watching TV shows that you would have never watched when you were younger or your parents would not have allowed you to watch? Um, like, it's funny how we we sort of get sort of calloused. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter four, verse one and two says, now the spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, the end times, that's I believe today, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, teachings of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. What's the conscience searing? Um, a seared conscience means you don't have any feeling anymore in your conscience. One time you used to be convicted by your conscience that God gave you by those sins. But the more you engage in those sins, you start to lose that feeling. Does this describe people today having lost a conscience? Uh, man, it's it's so amazing to me to watch people um, rioting in the street because of certain things. And you're kind of like, man, where's people's conscience? Um, whether it's... Um, you know, what's going on in Israel, and I always just kind of marvel that these LGBTQ people are all, you know, supporting Hamas. Because uh, if they were in the Gaza Strip, they'd, they'd be hanging from a crane in the street or thrown off a building. That's what the uh, Iranians and the, you know, the Shiite Muslims, that's what they do to gay people, they kill them. And yet here, here these guys are supporting. It's, it's a little shock, shocking. Uh, there's even Jews, some Jews that have gone to these colleges and universities here in the United States and been brainwashed by these crazy pipe puffing cardigan sweater wearing professors to believe that the Palestinians are this ancient people that have lived there and the Israelis. Like it's such a brainwashing and it's, it's, it's a no brainer history. Um, there's never been a Palestinian state of Palestinians as we know them today. Um, I have a newspaper at home called the Palestinian Times. It's from like 1924. Um, And it was edited by Jews. Uh, It was written by all Jewish authors, Palestinian Times, for the Palestinian people, which were Jews and Arabs that happened to live in what was called Palestine at that time, back in the 1920s. It wouldn't really be till Yasser Arafat in the 1950s and 60s where they'd start kind of making the Palestinian people be a sort of an invented group of people. Um, that were these Arabs that had been displaced. Uh, it's just a total made-up narrative. All you got to do is just read some real history. Like, just get a encyclopedia that's older than you know, 25 years old, because all the new ones lie uh, and tell you this whole new narrative of these people, the Palestinians. Um, do I feel sorry for some of the Palestinians? Of course, but it's they're Arab people that actually, you know, th- th- their own people wouldn't let them leave Israel when the whole British mandate, the whole Transjordan thing, the British, like there's a whole history there. We've done whole teachings on that, by the way, if you're interested, but um, it's important to know that the narrative what people are hearing is just so ridiculous. And yet people have just um, you know, lost their sense of what is true. And along with that, I think their conscience to know what's right and wrong has just become so seared. They have no sense of what is right and wrong. So that's why people can say, there's no such thing as, you know, what is a woman? You know, uh, you know and, and, and are there really multiple genders? And how can people have a conscience and think that way? It's all just a searing of the conscience. The Bible says that's gonna happen in the last days. And deception will, will run rampant during the end times. We shouldn't be shocked at all the deception that happens in the world today. Um, The world's conscience has become seared. Um, So leprosy is a type of sin in such a way you, you start to lose feeling. By the way, is pain good? Some of you are like, I don't like pain. Yeah, but did you know that God invented pain? And I wonder if it's there for a reason. When you break your arm, you know something's wrong. At least I hope you do. And when your arm is there kind of, you know, uh, you know, if you didn't have any feeling, your arm would just be kind of flapping around. You're like, oh, great, I'm more flexible than I was before. <laughs> but you know, the pain tells you something's wrong. So you don't just put a little band aid on your broken arm. You got to fix that broken arm because of the pain. Um, and that's the way God made your body. I, I wonder, by the way, when you start to sin, you lose that sense and you don't even realize you're wrecking your life and hurting. That's the problem of the leper. Um, by the way, uh, did David the psalmist feel pain emotionally? Man, if you read the Psalms, he was a guy. You know, we might call him manic, maybe a manic depressive. Uh, we, we'd call him different things because he he had some real mental struggles in his life. I love that there's always a Bible character that people can relate to. If you're someone who struggles with those kinds of things, um, David's a guy who felt pain of depression, anxiety. Um, but he would always go back to the Lord uh, who would be the, the one who would help him. And uh, he would said, look to the hills from whence cometh my help. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Hope thou in God, he would talk to himself. Um, that pain was to show David there was a problem. And, and oftentimes it had to do with something he needed to fix or something he needed to change. Um, in the same way, when people are feeling anxiety, or depression, and we simply just level it up with some medication. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a time and a place for medications, of course. Um, but I think uh, people are far too quick to just medicate before actually really saying, what, why do I feel this pain? And if we just medicate, could we be putting a Band-Aid on a broken arm? There's actually something that needs to be fixed or changed or transformed. Um, uh, that's something to be careful with. Um, why do we feel depressed? Is there a mechanism within ourselves to drive us to want to have some help that might be deeper than just leveling off our emotions. I, I wonder about that. Um, so, you know, uh, Jesus, when he heals, uh, uh, notice every time Jesus heals someone, he also, we studied in Matthew, he always makes them whole. Remember that? The woman with the issue of blood. He didn't just heal her issue, he healed her and made her whole. There's a, there's a that's, that's the thing, that's why the pain I think is important. You don't just wanna have it just attacked on healing. You want to have, you want to be made whole in your body, soul, and spirit. That's what the Lord does. Um, so, um, that's kind of an important thing, you know, for us to be considering. Um, so watch out. You know, the more we sin, if you're losing your sensation of what is good and bad, your conscience has become seared. Um, you might get back to just kind of saying, what did I feel like when I was a kindergartner? what was good. You might have to rewind a little bit and go back and say, what are the attitudes that I've embraced that the world, you know, is, a, is it an attitude about alcohol? Is it an attitude about music or or that you're listening to? I'm always shocked at, at some of the horrible, you know, songs out there that are just godless, heathen, sexually perverse uh, lyrics that Christians are constantly reposting. And, you know, it's like, it's a little bit of a shock how we've just become seared in that area you know, the things we watch with our eyes, the places we go with, and you know, we have to kind of rewind and go back. Jesus said, if you want to be happy, the Greek word is is, uh, happy, but uh, translated, but blessed, happy are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled. The antithesis of that is miserable are those who hunger and thirst after unrighteousness for they will remain empty. That's the opposite of that. And uh, if you're feeling empty, Uh, in your life, one of the things you might wanna do is say, okay, how can I hunger and thirst after things that are righteous? Not out of legalism, but just to be happy, blessed. Um, So leprosy is like sin in that you lose feeling. It also, I told you leprosy stinks. Did you know there's ancient writings? Josephus in his uh, ancient works of antiquities, um, you know, he wrote them in the first century. Um, He said you you could smell um, a leper colony um, like miles away. Uh, there was such a strong stench. of, uh, and, and really, um, sin stinks. Sin really does stink. And the person that's the sinner is the one that doesn't smell it. Um, do you remember uh, when, when you had little children or maybe when you were one? The two-year-old doesn't wanna stop playing just for the nuisance of going to use the restroom. The two-year-old will run around the house with a loaded diaper, and would rather just sit around squishing around the living room and <laughs> plopping down and playing with toys. And, and, and yet, uh, when, when you get down, you're just like, woo wee, the little kid just could care less. And one of the things you're hoping to train your child, at least by the time they're 18, is <laughs> to be potty trained. <laughs> but um, you know, we're, we're often the last ones to realize our sin stinks. And the Lord's saying, man, you, uh, le- sin is like leprosy. It stinks. Not only do you lose feeling, not only does it have an awful stench, but it also brings isolation. Um, one thing that long-term sin does is you start to find yourself isolated from people you love, um, especially if you're part of a Christian family, Christian church, and you think it's the church not accepting you. Um, the church hurt, but it's actually your sin that stink, and it's your sin that moved you kind of outside of what, of what was good fellowship. Um, because of the decisions you made. Oh, that's just Christians being hypocritical, judgmental. That's the way it looks, is kind of a um, sort of an attitude of not repenting and saying, I'm the one who's the problem. Um, so it brings about isolation. The leper colony was a horrible place to live the rest of your existence, but it, uh, leprosy caused isolation. Also loss of functionality. You start losing your extremities, your fingers, your hands. You lose um, you know, what you're able to do uh, with your life. And that's what people uh, experience when you just embrace sin. You'll lose out on opportunities the Lord has planned and the blessings that were meant for your life. And on and on it goes. Leprosy is a picture of sin. So Jesus reaches out and touches. Did you see in verse 13, it says he put forth his hand and touched him saying, I will be thou clean. Did Jesus just kind of, now Now, by the way, this is an interesting problem. Did Jesus, did uh, Jesus, Did Jesus wanna do away with the law? No, but what did Jesus come to do? Fulfill the law. Did Jesus ever break the law? No. Um, Did the law say you were not supposed to touch a leper? Uh Uh-oh. You've got a problem. Contradiction in the Bible. Uh, The law says you can't touch a leper and Jesus touched a leper. So what do you do with that? Well, um, I'm not sure the answer to that other than... Who knows? I'm not worried about it. I'll tell you why. Um, because Jesus cleansed him. He was no longer a leper, so end of the problem. Uh, well, was he a leper? Was it, some people get into the nuance, as he reached out to touch him. As he did it, he cleansed him. So when he touched him, he's suddenly clean. And so he never really touched a leper. Well, maybe, but that's not what it says. Maybe. Um, but can I just tell you? There's, there's there's a couple things about this. First of all, did he just touch him? Like, okay, be clean. Ugh. Get out his antibacterial wipe. You know, uh, is that what Jesus did? No. Uh, in fact, the Greek word for touched here in Luke 3, uh, five thirteen is a great word. It's haptomai, which means to fasten oneself to, to cling to, to adhere to. Um, uh, by the way, uh, in some places in the Bible, this haptomai is implied of the Holy Spirit um, like fastening a fire to something, to kindle, to set something on fire, kind of almost enveloping something. Um, that's this word. So Jesus just didn't touch him. It seems like he just grabbed this guy and just like gave him a big old hug. That's the word, haptomai. Uh, uh, but um, so, so Jesus more than just touches him. Now, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, uh, I, love, I love all of, has anybody read the works of Fruchtenbaum? Oh, good, some of you know him. Uh, highly recommended, uh, interesting guy. Um, in his, the miracles, uh, the Messiah miracles, uh, he, he wrote some interesting things about this. Um, prior to Jesus coming on the earth, the Messiah, we, we know that Jesus is the Messiah. The rabbis before Jesus actually came, um, they actually had taught of separating miracles into two categories. First, there's miracles that anyone could do if they were empowered by the the Spirit of God to do those miracles. The rabbis acknowledged that. But the second category of miracles the rabbis taught about is what they would call the messianic miracles. They believed the Messiah that was to come would have a whole nother level of miracles that he would perform. Um, Only the Messiah would be able to perform those miracles. Now this is tradition of the Jews. It's not uh, necessarily uh, in the Bible per se. It's what the rabbis taught. The law, uh, you know, uh, unclean if you're touched by something dead or unclean animal uh, or someone who's alive with leprosy, you're now unclean and you have to go through the ceremonial cleansing. The law was uh, after the law was given, no Jew had become cleansed of leprosy after the Leviticus chapter 14 uh, ritual was given. What's that? If you became a leper and Leviticus 14 says, if you're a leper and you suddenly become clean, you had to go through a very rigid sort of procedure to be declared clean. But Fruchtenbaum te- teaches that there was nobody ever from Leviticus 14 that was a Jew that went through that Jewish ritual cleansing of the leper uh, after the law was given. From the time of the Mosaic law given, there was no record of any Jew healed. Of- Miriam was healed of leprosy, but that was before the law was given, uh, if you know your uh, chronological story of Mary, Miriam, and Moses. Um, and you say, what about Naaman? Well, remember, Naaman wasn't a Jew, he was a Syrian. We talked about him on Sunday. And he didn't go through ceremony and cleansing because he's not a Jew. Um, but from the time the Mosaic law was completed, there was never a case of any Jew being healed of leprosy. But the mes- mes- messianic miracles, they said, would include perhaps the Messiah who would be healing people of leps- leprosy. And they hadn't seen that from the giving of the law, Leviticus 14, until right now, Jesus comes on the scene, and he's the first one who cleanses a leper. Um, leprosy was left out of Levitical cures because there was not a cure. But in case there was, they had the ritual um, to determine was the leper really clean? Um, if so, are, are, um, you know, how did they become clean? And then this is what the rabbis taught. Uh, then they need to uh, examine how the leper was cleansed and, and uh, do an investigation lest they miss who the Messiah is because the Messiah would be the one to cleanse, cleanse the leper. So do you see this interesting stage being set here? By Jesus being the first one to cleanse the leper since the Levitical law came down, although the priesthood had all detailed instructions how they would respond to the case of a healed leper, they never had the opportunity to put these instructions to, to, to practice. Because um, from the time Moses' law to uh, throughout all of Jewish history, there was never a chance to do it. The healing of the leper then, um, Jesus, what does Jesus tell him to do? This is great. Jesus tells them in, in verse 14, he says, Tell no man, but go and show thyself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing. According as Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. And you'll notice a reference in your margin there to Leviticus chapter 14, um, uh, where that cleansing of the leper uh, uh, is, is talked about. Uh, and, and by the way, um, Jesus did this, um, it says, cleansing according to Moses' command for a testimony unto them. What's this? What's this? Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest. Uh, this is gonna be a testimony. What kind of a testimony is the priest? You got a cleansed leper and a guy who everybody knew in town was a leper and he walks up and says, I'm clean. And it's their responsibility, the priest, to, to do an investigation to find out who is this that cleansed leper? Because this could be the Messiah. That's, that's what the rabbis taught. Um, now these guys, you say, well, why didn't they confirm this and say this must be the Messiah? It's because of the hardness of their hearts. There, there, this is just one of many signs that Jesus was the Messiah. But I find it interesting. One of the great signs would be that he would cleanse the leper. And these guys are gonna blow that off. Um, so just kind of a freebie for you there. It's that's, that's kind of interesting. Jesus says, this is a testimony to them that I'm the Messiah is, is the idea there. Pretty cool. Um, so the man is cleansed. Um, by the way, don't be afraid to get your hands dirty. Jesus was not afraid to hug the leper. I wonder if sometimes we as Christians are a little bit too afraid to get our hands dirty and touch people that are not so touchable. Um, I love that Jesus, he didn't have to touch this guy. He could have just thought it be cleansed and it would have worked out just fine. But Jesus was willing to uh, put himself out there and risk that and we need to be willing to do that as well. Um, so uh, back to the uh, main uh, you know, idea here, Jesus cleanses the leper. The man is cleansed. And why does Jesus say don't tell anybody except for go show yourself to the priest? Um, There's all all kinds of uh, perhaps theories that Bible scholars will throw out there uh, that it's a timing issue. Jesus knew the frenzy that was already happening because he was healing people, but he'd always say stuff like, mine hour is not yet come. It wasn't his time to be glorified, but it wasn't also his time to be crucified yet. So Jesus is slowing the train down a little bit by saying, go and tell no one. That's one theory. Um, another theory is go and tell no one because he's not declared clean yet. By this leper who everybody knew was a leper, if they see him running down the street, um, they might say, you're, you're supposed to be in the leper colony. They could literally stone him to death if they wanted to. Um, so it was a little dangerous run from where he got healed to go show himself to the priest. So maybe he's like, don't, don't, don't tell anybody, go straight to the priest. Some people make that argument because they all knew he was a leper. Um, another one is... Um, all eyes were on Jesus, not just his miracles. You know, Jesus' goal wasn't to be the leper cleanser um, or the leprosy healing dude. Um, he was um, coming to die for the sins of the world and his main goal was to go to the cross. So he was focusing on the proper things. Some people make that argument. Maybe it's all three, I don't know. But the main focus is Jesus. Uh, that's what we look to. So you got the calling of the laborers, verses one through 11 cleansing of the leper verses 12 through 15. And now we have Jesus cures the sinner uh, verses 16 through 26. Let's take a look. It says after all that happened, verse 16, and he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. Now pause just for a second here. If Jesus needed to withdraw and pray, how much more do you need to withdraw and pray? This is something we have to always remind ourselves of. Um, you know, that prayer is a, it was a key in Jesus's ministry and it needs to be a key for all of us. Prayer, prayer, prayer. I wonder how much we miss because we haven't spent time in prayer. Um, you know, uh, I, I think it's so important. You know, it, 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 there's some supporting evidence from a hostile source that prayer works. What's the hostile source? Would you call CNN a hostile source? Check this out. This is um, June 17th, 2020, The Psychological Benefits of Prayer, What Science Says About the Mind-Soul Connection. Um, the study that compared secular uh, thinking on self-affirmation, breathing and all that stuff um, was one thing, but then they did a whole nother thing on spiritual praying to God. So this is putting aside meditation and all the other you know new age stuff. This is literally people praying to God um they they said that they found that spiritual prayer um people that engage in regular prayer are less anxious and more positive than other people groups. A study found prayer can help reduce anger and aggression, more likely to feel less anger and aggression after a provocation. When dating and married partners pray for one another, they tended to be less aggressive and more inclined to forgive. Effects of prayer on depression and anxiety found that members of a group had lower rates of depression and anxiety and were more optimistic after sessions in which they prayed for one another. Hmm, what a shock. It's like, that's of course, of course. Funny, it takes a secular study to find out what the Bible has told us clearly all along. A man suffering from stress called a free psychiatric hotline um, um, and uh, they said, welcome to the psychiatric hotline. Uh, If you're an obsessive compulsive, repeatedly press one. If you're codependent, ask someone else to press two. If you have multiple personalities, press three, four, and five. If you suffer from paranoia, we already know who you are and what you want. Stay on the line and we'll be there shortly. If you're schizophrenic, listen closely and a little voice will tell you what number to press. If you're bipolar, it doesn't matter what button you pick, no one will answer. If you're depressed, push any button, it doesn't make a difference anyway. Thank you for your call. It's a joke, but it's kind of sad because I think there's people that have very real problems and the world sort of tacks on solutions. And I I feel like that joke is sort of like a representation of sort of the tacked on solutions. When the Bible gives us the solution, the world says, no, 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 the Bible, that's too simple. Just pray and seek the Lord, that's just ridiculous. And people throw that off as no big deal. Um, I'm sure there's people that are mad I even made that joke. Uh, they're probably saying, oh, I'm this way. And how can you make a joke about that? What's a joke is the psychiatric hotline. And a lot of the so-called solutions the world gives, it is a joke. The Bible is no joke. Isaiah 41.10, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Oh, Brett, I don't know if I believe that. It's, you're gonna either believe God or you're not. Um, Romans says, Paul says, let God be true and every man a liar. If you're saying, well, that doesn't work, then you're a liar. That's what the Bible says. Um, But Brett, I'm depressed, doesn't matter. The Lord is your help. I am thy God, I will strengthen thee, I will help thee, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Um, On and on, I can give you hundreds of verses, Philippians 4, 6, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, with supplication, thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which passes or surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. David, the psalmist who is really a mess emotionally, psychologically, he said in Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. With disorders that the world tries to medicate or even celebrate, Jesus is still the answer. And prayer is a huge part of that. Jesus. Um, so rightly uh, goes off and prays, and that's that's how he starts this this whole thing where he cures the sinner. Uh, so check it out, verse 17. It came to pass uh, on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. This is a, a verse that I, often is overlooked. Do you remember the Bomb theory that um, the, 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 um, you know, the, the leper would go and show himself to the priest and then they were responsible to research and say, well, what cleansed the leper? Is this the Messiah? Could it be that that's why all these guys came out? Like people miss this. So far, Jesus's ministry is just local to the Northern region of the Galilee area. Um, but all of a sudden, you've got all these big powerful Pharisees And it's not just the rabbis and the local guys. They were Pharisees, doctors of the law out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and even Jerusalem. They came from Jerusalem. This means the bigwigs are here. Why were the bigwigs here to see Jesus? Were they having a big convention? Oh man, there's some guy over here. Let's go see what he has to say. Were there, you know, Pharisee convention? I believe it's possible that they were coming to see the guy who cleansed the leper because that was a big deal, uh, messianically speaking. Um, but notice it also says, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Uh, um, Notice the the word, it's kind of interesting. Uh, the, 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 The power of the Lord was present to heal them. Before Jesus came here to heal others, what was he doing? He was praying, and now I think that prayer and his power, that's linked. Remember he couldn't cast out a certain demon without prayer and fasting? I think Jesus had prayed it up in verse 16, and now the power is present because of that. Um, and it has to do with the power of, of, of the spirit moving in his life. Um, the religious leaders came to inspect um, not just general power, but the power of healing. Um, by the way, there's guys that, you know, on TV that claim to have the gift of healing and the power to heal people and stuff like that. I always like to remind you that everyone as a Christian can be given a gift of healing for any person at any time, but you don't have the gift of healing. Um, Can I just quickly go over that with you? Because this is important. Um, Flip over to Romans chapter 12 real quick. I'll show you. There's the motivational gifts and the manifestations of the spirit. Not to be confused. People confuse them all the time. Romans 12 is what we might call the motivational gifts or uh, gifts that people actually do have. Um, It's Romans chapter 12, verse one. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me that to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, all members have not the same office. So we being many are one body in Christ and everyone members um, of another having then, listen, gifts. So we call these the gifts um, that the Lord gives to each person. What are you gifted in? Well, it's probably one of these areas. Then having gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy, according to the proportion of faith. Um, Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or the word is serving. Um, or he that teacheth on teaching. I believe that's the gifting the Lord is giving me. I love teaching the word. Um, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. Some people have a gift of exhortation. Uh, or he that giveth. If you're very wealthy and you like to give, maybe that's your gift. Giving. Let him do it with simplicity. Him that ruleth. Uh, the idea is, um, you know, sort of a, uh, you know, the guy in charge of things and good at organization and, and leading. Uh, do it with diligence. He that shows mercy with cheerfulness, and then he goes on talking about how love should be part of that whole thing. But that's the list, Romans 12, we call that the motivational gifts, um, that are gifts that the Lord gives you. And and I like to, uh, if you want, we've done whole teachings on this, and how do you know what your giftings are that God has given you? Usually you fall into one of those categories. So when you look at the Romans 12 gifts, and just break it down, these are the ones that are listed there. Prophecy, which is edification, exhortation, and comfort, not foretelling the future not being a prophet like John the Baptist, but it's, a, it's, it's the New Testament form of prophecy. Ministry, serving, teaching, exhortation, giving, ruling, showing mercy. Everybody usually falls in one of those categories. Um, now that's really important to know that. Where people go wrong is they, they talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, I'll show you what I mean. Turn with me now to First Corinthians 12. <clears throat> this is important, First Corinthians 12, just a few pages to the right. 1 Corinthians 12. And here's where we get it kind of messed up. When Benny Hinn says, I have the gift of healing. And everything's, wow, he's got the gift. I think that's just biblically incorrect. But I understand why people think that and say that stuff. I understand why he says it. It's very different. But in verse uh, one of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Now, Can I just point out, there's a word in italics in that uh, first verse. What's the word? Gifts. Why is a word in italics when you read it in your Bible? Because it's not there in the original text. Uh, They put it there to try to help the text along. Sometimes it is helpful because it is a translation from one language to another. This is an unfortunate one. Because everybody says, I have the, the gift of tongues. I have the gift of healing. That's not correct. It should read, now concerning spiritual stuff, Things that are spiritual, of or maybe even better, things of the Holy Spirit. Concerning things that are of the Holy Spirit, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. What's so amazing is of all the things that the Bible says, don't be ignorant of, this is one of the five or so. And people are ignorant about this one, that's the bummer. But he says, I would not that you be ignorant. Verse two, you know that um, you were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as you were led. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaketh Uh, speaking by the Spirit of God, calleth Jesus accursed. And no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. You'll notice in your margin there, the diversity of gifts is referring to Romans 12. Did you see that in your margin reference there, if you have a marginal reference Bible? Um, Verse four is talking about what we just went over in Romans 12. Those are the diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit, Romans 12. And the next category, verse 5, there are differences of administrations, but of the same Lord. Um, and, uh, um, and, then, uh, and then there are verse 6, there are diversities of operations, but is of the same God which worketh all in all. But the Okay, so uh, I'm not gonna go into all this, but these are the ways the Lord rolls. The uh, administrations, those are Ephesians 4.11. If you know those, uh, we won't go over all that right now. But verse seven, but the manifestation of the Spirit, that word manifestation means when the Spirit makes himself known um, of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Every Christian gets to, if, if they want, the Holy Spirit's gonna you know, use them to profit everyone. For to one is given, verse 8, by the spirit of the word of wisdom. To another, a word of knowledge by the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, um, the gifts. Notice there's a plural there gifts, not I have the gift of healing. He, he will just give gifts of healing by the same spirit. To another, the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that the one and the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Now that's King James way of saying, the Holy Spirit can move however he wants to, and he can give you any one of these so-called gifts, if you wanna call them that, at any time. You can have a gift of tongues given to you just as a gift at one time, doesn't mean you have the gift. It's just the Lord gives you a manifestation of the tongues. That's what the Holy Spirit will do. Um, or a, a word of prophecy. Some people have the gift of prophecy. It's part of their who they are. Um, but there's other people that will, you'll have just a word of edification. The Holy Spirit will just give you for someone that you are talking to. Um, uh, these, are all, these aren't things you possess for the rest of your life. These are just the Lord giving you severally as he will. That's the the idea there. Um, The reason I point this out is, it's wrong for people to think, well, I have the gift of tongues, that's my gifting. No, if the Lord speaks through by the Holy Spirit through you in a word of tongues, that that can happen, but you can also um, see the manifestation of a word of wisdom or an interpretation of tongue or a word of knowledge. You see, the listing in 1 Corinthians 12 is similar but different. These are called the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, and as a Christian, if you're filled with the Holy Ghost, you can exercise any one of these times whenever the Holy Spirit comes upon you, whenever He wants to, and whenever you're open to that. You know, using that manifestation. Uh, by the way, the Spirit of the Prophet is subject to the Prophet. First Corinthians fourteen says so. If the Lord gives you a word of tongues, you—it's not like you can. Oh, I just oh, so, I, the Holy Spirit speaking through me. I can't hold it back. You have control over yourself. Uh, by the way. There's people that act like that's not true. But these, these two lists are very different. Now, um, uh, all that to say, the word gift is kind of an important thing there to, to sort of understand. Um, the reason um, this is uh, sort of important, let's go back to Luke. Um, um, Jesus is prayed up now and now he has the power to heal them Jesus is demonstrating what it's like to be a person who's prayed up, ready to do whatever the spirit might do through him. But this gives us sort of the heads up. He's about ready to do a healing work. And the same thing that Jesus does here, the Holy Spirit can do through you. So instead of thinking you're Benny Hinn because you have the power of healing, don't think that way. Just understand if somebody comes to you and wants prayer for sickness or disease, you as a Christian can lay hands on them and pray, Lord, would you heal my brother? And Lord, we know you're able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Your name is Jehovah Rapha, the God that heals. And Lord, if, you, if it's your will that this person be healed at this moment, would you please do that? And I think it's the prayer of faith, but it's also the prayer of submission, saying not my will, but thy will be done. And we see the Lord healing people all the time with simple prayers from people that don't have fancy hairdos and slick suits and uh, jets and stuff like that. Um, did you see that guy that goes and stands on the stage? What's his name, Bonko or whatever? Uh, he, he, uh, he looks at people, just looks at the crowd. You pay big dollars, to like a crowd this big, and he'll just stand on the stage. He'll walk out, they'll bring him out, and he'll stand there and he'll just look. And there's something healing about his eyes. And everybody looks at his eyes and they all watch for you know, 45 minutes and, and then they all leave and they're all weeping and crying because they look to this guy, um, dumb. That's just really dumb. Uh, let's go with what the Bible says. Um, um, now, uh, this is important because um, uh, God has a gift of healing ready to go here through Christ, uh, which I think is such an important part to acknowledge. This, this only confirms what I'm trying to show you the Bible says about healing uh, in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. But back to point number three here, Jesus cures the sinner. Um, it says here, uh, verse 18, And behold, men brought in a bed um, a man which was taken with palsy and they sought means to bring him in to lay him before him and when they could not find what, uh, what way they might bring him in because of the multitude they went upon the housetop and let him down uh, through the, uh, the tiling in, uh, with his couch or his bed in the midst before Jesus and when he saw uh, their faith he said unto them man thy sins are forgiven thee. And when the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus perceived their thoughts, and he answered and said unto them, what reason ye in your hearts? Whether it's easier to say, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, rise up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man hath power upon the earth to forgive sins, he said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise, take up thy couch, and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them and took up that whereon he lay and departed into his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed and glorified God saying, they were filled with fear saying, we have seen strange things today. (laughs) The word strange there in the Greek is paradox. We've seen a paradox here, um, which is kind of cool. We studied this story in depth um, when we were in Mark's gospel, Uh, did a whole Sunday on the same story. Um, But notice it was their faith, the bros, the buddies that brought their buddy in. It was their faith that Jesus saw and thus he was able. And again, rather than just healing him, he first, of course, um, forgave him of his sins. Again, this is important to know that, you know, you don't, it's not really about uh, the the being healed first. The most important thing is the power to forgive sins. Um, People will learn to walk in the ways of Jesus um, and follow Jesus, but first they need to be saved. Um, Make sure that that's the the first part of it. Well, the next, uh, we're running out of time. The next section, quickly, Jesus changes men's lives uh, in verse 27 to the end of the chapter. It says there uh, in verse uh, 27, um, and after these things, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. And he left all, rose up and followed him. And Levi who's a tax collector, that's what the publican is. Levi made him a great feast in his own house. No doubt Le- Levi's house was, um, you know, pretty fancy because he was a wealthy rip-off artist. Uh, but he was hated by most people, uh, except for sig- sinners. Matthew, uh, who's named Levi here at first, he's a, a tax collector who's hanging out with sinners. And isn't it interesting, that's who all comes over to his house. They probably do that all the time, parties in his house. Um, so um, Levi made a great feast in his own house. There came a great company of publicans and, uh, and of others that sat down with them. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answered, said to them, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Um, now, this is what a mistake people make. I find it interesting there's sinners in the church. Um, and I always say, good, that's what, that's, what, that's what we're here for. We want sinners here. And if you're a sanctimonious Pharisee saying, I can't believe what that girl is wearing on a Sunday morning, um, then that, you're a Pharisee, man. You gotta remember, there's people that are coming here, they may or may not even know Jesus. Um, and they're here to praise the Lord that they're in church. Um, that's, that's something we have to be really careful of. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Verse 33. And they said unto him, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, the disciples of the Pharisees, but thine eat and drink. Um, big question. The holier people, John the Baptist guys fasted and prayed. Even the Pharisees' disciples fasted and prayed, but your guys, they're partying down with a bunch of publicans and sinners. Uh, this cracks me up. This is just shaking up the whole religious world. And, and here's Jesus's answer. Verse 34, he said to them, can you make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them and then shall they fast in those days. Um, uh, His first example out of three, by the way, He's, um, he's gonna give three examples. Uh, first, the bridegroom, then he's gonna talk about a garment, then he's gonna talk about wineskins. Three examples of why his disciples are not fasting. The first one is you're at a wedding and the bridegroom and the bride is there. Uh, why would you fast? It's supposed to be a party. And Jesus's point is he's the bridegroom um, and he's there. And um, why would you fast when the bridegroom's there? That's ridiculous. You wouldn't fast at a wedding party because the wedding's there, it's, it's, it's supposed to have fun. And being a disciple of Jesus is fun. They're having a good time eating and drinking and having a good time not getting drunk, I believe, um, but definitely enjoying their time, even though they are a bunch of publicans and sinners. This cracks me up. Um, Then he gives uh, illustration number two, verse 36. And he spake also a parable to them. No man putteth a piece of new garment on old. If otherwise, then both the new maketh a rent and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. So illustration number two is that of a garment. If you have an old pair of Levi's, you got a hole in them. Uh, today, you'd say, cool. Um, but in Bible days, they actually tried to repair their clothing. They didn't want to look like you know um, hobos and stuff. Um, so they would, you'd patch it up. But you couldn't use a brand new piece of denim and sew it on an old piece of denim because the, the old denim's pre-shrunk. And if you sew it on and then you, sh- you wash it, then that's gonna rip the garment because the old denim's weak and it also is already shrunk. When the other one's gonna shrink, it's gonna rip it all apart. Um, you can't put the old with the new, is, 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 or else it'll rip. And then verse 37 is the third illustration of the wine in the wineskins. It says, verse 37, no man putteth new wine in old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled and the bottles shall perish but new wine must be put in new bottles and both are preserved. No man also having drunk old wine straightway desires the new for he saith the old is better. What's this all about the wine and the wineskins? Old wineskins, well, they started out new. When you had a brand new uh, batch of wine, you'd pour it into a a new wineskin. The wineskins are made out of leather and uh, they're carefully made to hold the wine. But as the wine ferments, the wine lets off a certain gas that causes the uh, expansion in the wineskin. And the wineskin would expand, and then as the wine would would age, uh, then that wineskin would become stiff and hardened and even kind of brittle, but it almost was like a nice little canteen that was hardened as a container. Um, And that was great, as long as you didn't try to put new wine in a hardened wineskin, because if you you poured out all the old wine out of the old wineskin, and put new wine in, then the gas process would happen again. Only this time, the leather doesn't stretch. It cracks and bursts open, which is not where you wanna put your wine. Um, so you don't do that. You put new wine in new wineskins, and you keep the old wine in the old wineskins. Um, and, um, uh, and by the way, there's some interesting things here because um, you know, what is the old wine? Uh, you know, the old wine is you know, the, the Jewish way, um, you know, the religious system that was in place. Um, and trying to put the new work that Jesus was doing. Jesus was doing a new covenant, a new work. If you try to put the new covenant in the old covenant, uh, it's gonna not work. Uh, so Jesus says, you're gonna put new wine. And he's not saying that the old wine is bad. He's just saying, you don't, you don't try to blend the two together. Now, uh, does anybody know how, if you're a historian or you know how this works, how do you make an old wineskin become flexible again? Anybody know? You soak it in water. If anybody knows how leather works, if you take old leather and you soak it in water, it kind of brings back the soft stretchiness of it. And you can, uh, there's some interesting things there. I find that interesting because if you look at this Luke passage a little more carefully, Jesus says, and no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled and the bottles shall perish. But the new wine must be put into new bottles um, and both are preserved. Um, this is interesting because there's two words for new here. They're not this, we just use new and new, it's clumsy. But the Greek word for this, the first word, number one, is new, Greek word neos, recently born, young, youthful, new. The second word is kinos, which means renewed, uh, new kind, um, unprecedented, unheard of before. And that's that's what um, is interesting. But new wine must be put into Renewed, so it's not the doing away of the old covenant, it's a renewed sort of covenant that's being talked about. And how do you do that? Water, water is a type of the word. Um, and that's why all throughout the scripture, the Bible is compared to water. Ephesians five, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the word. Ephesians five, 25 and 26. Uh, Psalm 119, how shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed to the word? Um, and, and by the way, guess where else this word um, renewed? Uh, kinos is used, Romans twelve two, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing. That's the word kinos, the renewing of your mind that you may prove that which is good and acceptable will of God. So the Lord was doing a fresh work um, and the Lord, it was. it's hard to get the old wine in. You wanna know how that kind of came out? Did anybody see the Jesus Revolution movie? Uh, It was a great movie. That was a good example of the Lord doing kind of a new work in the church, but the old wineskins didn't like it at all. I was a part of that when I was a kid, the Jesus movement. That's where my family was. We were part of the the movement. And uh, people, our old Baptist friends thought we had lost our minds, singing non-hymns. And uh, there were hippies in our church who had just fresh off of smoking weed and uh, unsaved. And then they got saved and baptized. And people just didn't know what to do with that. That's just like the same kind of thing the Lord was doing kind of a new work in the church. Uh, I pray that he continues to do new works of revival in, the, in this land. Um, it reminds me, I don't, I'm out of time, so I'm not gonna go into this, but remember in Ezra, the old men were, were weeping while the young men were rejoicing because the new temple, the old men hated the old temple. It's not like the old days. And the young people were like, we have a temple. This is awesome. Uh, and um, which temple was better, by the way? The new temple that was cheap and r- built by rubbish? or the old temple that was glorious built by Solomon. Which one was greater? The new one, why? Because Jesus would be in that temple, the the little dumpy one that was remodeled by Zerubbabel. Um, It's a great story. But as the old guys like, it's not like the old days, you know. but the Lord was doing something new in that temple. Well, I'm out of time. So there you have it, (laughs) chapter five, let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. There's so much here that we could really spend so much time just diving into so many of these things, but I pray that you'd help us to receive your word, to remember the things that we're learning and reading here. Um, Lord, I pray that you'd keep us uh, open to your working in our life by your spirit. Lord, that we would like you to take time to pray and seek your face, that we might be equipped, that when your spirit is moving, that you could work through us and in us, whatever way you see fit. Lord, help us to be more like your son, Jesus. Bless these, your people, who put in the time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.